from PRX. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. Studio 360. On today's show, we are serving up three of our favorite American icon segments. And to begin, it's Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. That, of course, is his 1850 novel about a woman being shamed for getting pregnant adulterously. Anna Sale produced that story in 2013. And even though it's only four years old, it resonates differently now as the country is engulfed in news stories every day about sexual misconduct and we are all engaged in new twists and turns in that national conversation. Anna is now the host of the excellent podcast Death, Sex, and Money and she is on the line with me. Hello, Anna. Hi, Kurt. Do do you remember as a young person when you first read The Scarlet Letter? I think I read it in high school Um, And, you know, what I remember at the time was, of course, like, this is a story about the treacherous road that women have to navigate about how to be um, honorable. That's sort of what I remember being a young woman reading it at the time was, you know, you've got to not get in trouble or you'll be publicly shamed. And if you are publicly shamed, you hold the shame alone. Right. You don't uh, drag anyone else down with you. Right. And d- did you think at the time, if you can recall, like, whoa, those 1640s, that was a tough time. Today, there's no shame. I don't think I ever thought that. I mean, I knew, like, even as a 14-year-old that I wanted to be seen as both attractive to boys and for them not to get the wrong idea about the kind of girl yeah. I was. I knew yeah. that was a, a line I had to walk. Yeah. So it is obviously a story about sex and society and scandals and shaming. When you did this piece in 2013, around that same time, you were were covering the Anthony Weiner uh, uh, scandal. (laughs) What was that on your mind as you were doing this Scarlet Letter piece? Yeah, I was looking at the dates. I was like, wow, that was all happening at the same time. So weird. Um, But I think think even in the Anthony Weiner scandal, it felt different to me than the Scarlet Letter because there was such a power imbalance in a way with the young women that he was texting with and sexting with. Um, You know, you could make that argument with Hester Prynne, how it was the town reverend, but I don't think it was precisely the same thing. Um, Well, let's listen to this piece and then we'll talk a bit more on the other side. Here is our American icon on the Scarlet Letter produced and reported by Anna Sale. The Scarlet Letter opens with Hester Prynne stepping out of prison to a crowd of gawking townspeople. She's young, she's beautiful, and she has a baby in her arms. Hester Prynne, you have been found guilty of adultery. We are loath to invoke the full penalty of the law. This is from a 1934 movie version. So if you would have us be merciful, reveal the name of him that tempted you. No. She gets a life sentence of shame. The Scarlet Letter was published in 1850, but it's still there, everywhere, in any conversation about sex, illicit desire, and humiliation. And it's one of those references you can throw around for literary cred, like in this Taylor Swift song that mashes together Hawthorne and Shakespeare. 
It's shown up on The Simpsons and Roseanne. There was a modern riff with Emma Stone as a high schooler with a bad reputation. It was also on Twin Peaks. Hester Prune. Pretty name. During the interrogation of a prostitute. I read the Scarlet Letter in high school just like you did. I read it like most of American teenagers in a high school English class. Tom Parada is the author of a number of novels about sex and sexual politics in suburbia. Election, The Abstinence Teacher, Little Children. He hadn't read the book since he was a teenager, but he picked it up again before we spoke. I actually loved it this time. It's a little bit unhinged, and I feel like they're just these unruly sexual energies that the book is like really struggling to keep clamped down. And I think I just clamped them down enough that as a teenager, I miss that. And as an adult, I see it and was really struck by um, the kind of contained craziness of it. I remember feeling like it was weirdly sexy. I remember feeling sort of feminist about it. <laughs> Lindy West is a staff writer at Jezebel. It's a very clear demonstration of the arbitrariness of a lot of morality and the way that that disproportionately affects women. So I remember feeling as a woman that this was something I should be paying attention to. It's about a single mother. I mean, what could be more relevant, really? Brenda Wineapple is the author of a biography of Nathaniel Hawthorne. She's what they used to call a fallen woman. Fallen. And she's kind of proud of it. She took the baby on her arm, and with a burning blush and yet a haughty smile, and a glance that would not be abashed, looked around at her townspeople and neighbors. On the breast of her gown, in fine red cloth, surrounded with an elaborate embroidery and fantastic flourishes of gold thread, appeared the letter A. That's a kind of shocking image, I think. And then it becomes about what that means, what that means to her, what that means to her child, what that means to her lover, what it means to her husband, what it means to the community. And there are all these very different points of view about what that means, and they kind of change over time. So the sin is out there, but what Hester won't reveal is the father's name. I will not speak, answered Hester, turning pale as death but responding to this voice, which she too surely recognized. And my child must seek a heavenly father. She shall never know an earthly one. But the reader knows. It's the town minister, Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. He's there at Hester's sentencing. Publicly, he urges her to name the father. Privately, he's a mess. Arthur Dimsdale, sodden with guilt. That's Peter Coviello. He teaches English at Bowdoin College, and he's written about sex in 19th century literature. Just Hawthorne's great expression of someone just riven by a kind of self-horror that he can't work out. And preyed on, and preyed upon. The person preying upon Dimsdale is the other man in the book, Roger Chillingworth. He's Hester's husband, a much older man. He arrives in town to find Hester with her illegitimate baby. He pretends to be a physician and discovers Dimsdale is the father. But he doesn't let on. Instead, Chillingworth manipulates Dimsdale's insecurities to deepen his shame. As he proceeded, a terrible fascination, a kind of fierce, though still calm, necessity seized the old man within its grip and never set him free again until he had done all its bidding. He now dug into the poor clergyman's heart like a miner searching for gold, or rather, like a sexton delving into a grave. 
that love triangle between Hester Prynne, Arthur Dimsdale, and Roger Chillingworth pulses through the romantic text. Sex is always there. There's a kind of erotic overtone or undertone with Chillingworth and Dimsdale. This is a super queer book. The erotics of Chillingworth's really outsized and impassioned investment in Dimsdale and his destruction is, the, in certain ways, the larger romance of the book. Where it's not clear, really, who's after who and who's interested in whom, and that's all eroticized as well. Very sexy. <laughs> like on the night the three come across each other in town, and a meteor flashes across the sky. If the meteor kindled up the sky and disclosed the earth with an awfulness that admonished Hester Prynne and the clergyman of the Day of Judgment, then might Roger Chillingworth have passed with them for the arch-fiend, standing there with a smile and scowl to claim his own. So vivid was the expression, or so intense the minister's perception of it, that it seemed still to remain painted on the darkness after the meteor had vanished. The Scarlet Letter has that sense of the claustrophobia of a small town, the sense of being watched by people you know all the time. Hawthorne knew that feeling. He was living in his hometown, Salem, where one of his ancestors was a judge at the Salem Witch Trials. So the Puritans were on Hawthorne's mind, even as some modern ideas about women were starting to take shape. Hawthorne biographer Brenda Wineapple says Hawthorne was right in the middle of it. For a while, one of his very close friends was a very strong and sexual and outspoken woman named Margaret Fuller. Fuller was a pioneer of what came to be feminism. She wrote a book that inspired the landmark Seneca Falls Conference on Women's Rights, which happened just before The Scarlet Letter was published. But to tell his story about a woman exploring the boundaries of personal freedom, Hawthorne looked back, all the way to the 1600s. Somehow those present issues became more real for him and more exciting if they were projected past. Out of all this, Hawthorne created Hester Prynne. She has no precedent. There is no American literature. There is no American heroine before her. And Hawthorne had conflicted feelings about Hester. She's forced into a position of infamy because she's pregnant, because she's an unwed mother, um, because she had to tryst in the woods with a minister. Not a good thing. And yet at the same time, she chose to go. It's a strange book. It can't deal with sex, and yet it's creating the groundwork for a sexual revolution. Again, novelist Tom Parada. I think the thing that makes it so American and is the thing that makes it modern, too, though it's hard to see that, is that the real crime isn't desire, it's hypocrisy. And I think that's a specific... American view of, of sex. The Scarlet Letter's sexiest scene comes when Hester Prynne and Arthur Dimsdale meet again, this time away from Chillingworth's watchful eye. Hester and Pearl are on a walk, and the child runs ahead. That's when Hester sees Reverend Dimsdale walk past her, and she calls to him. So strangely did they meet in the dim wood that it was like the first encounter in the world beyond the grave of two spirits who had been intimately connected in their former life, but now stood coldly shuddering in mutual dread. The one-time lovers, at first, have no idea what to say to each other. 
When they found voice to speak, it was, at first, only to utter remarks and inquiries such as any two acquaintances might have made, about the gloomy sky, the threatening storm, and, next, the health of each. Thus they went onward, not boldly, but step by step, into the themes that were brooding deepest in their hearts. Hester reveals to Dimsdale that his friend Chillingworth is her husband. Dimsdale decides to leave town, and Hester says she'll go with him. They'll flee, start a new life together, and live happily ever after. And then the scene that the late novelist John Updike called one of the great moments in American fiction in an interview with NPR a year before he died. First she throws away the scarlet letter. Hester tosses the scarlet A aside. Oh, exquisite relief. She had not known the weight until she felt the freedom. By another impulse, she took off the formal cap that confined her hair, and down it fell upon her shoulders, dark and rich, with at once a shadow and a light in its abundance, and imparting the charm of softness to her features. How wonderful the power of the hair, the mystery of the long hair let down. John Updike wrote a trilogy based on The Scarlet Letter, each book retold from the perspective of one of the major characters. His 1988 book, S, is from Hester's point of view. She's such an arresting and slightly ambiguous figure. She's a funny mix of a truly liberated, defiantly uh, sexual and independent woman, but in the end, a woman who accepts the uh, penance that society imposed on her. I suppose she's, uh, she's an epitome of female predicaments. You know the female predicaments, the questions about how to get what you want within a tangle of obligations and expectations. Hester wants to be with her lover, and she loves him by protecting him. Those predicaments are still here, says Lindy West of Jezebel. We're still dealing with these issues now, and this was something that uh, Hawthorne was criticizing in the mid-19th century. That's pretty discouraging, actually. <laughs> and that's why the term scarlet letter is still ubiquitous. I guess we, we use it as a shorthand for what we call slut-shaming now, which is blaming women for their own sexuality and turning that into, into a moral failing. Lindy West pays a lot of attention to the contradictions in how people talk about women and sex on the Internet. On the one hand, she says there's consensus that it's okay for American women to have sex lives. But if you want to condemn or humiliate a woman, go online and point out she has a sex life. There are so many outlets to shame people for their behavior, to post pictures, naked pictures, or post details of people's personal lives that they don't want shared. It makes the stakes higher for everyone because it's not just hearsay anymore. People can bring up actual evidence. But on the flip side of that, the Internet's also amazing in terms of women finding solace in community. I mean, Hester Prynne would probably have loved having a Tumblr. I mean, I think that could have uh, really helped her out. And the Internet can also be a tool of revenge. Lindy West has become a kind of watchdog, and she brings a certain level of glee to taking on digital bullies. People have figured out that we can use the same tactics to shame the shamers. If they say something horrible to me, I will retweet it with their face attached to it and then all of my hilarious female friends will make fun of them. <laughs> I mean, I will crush them. Almost like Roger Chillingworth wanted to crush Arthur Dimsdale. 
Now, now, now I'm confused. Because isn't he the villain? Well, anyway, I guess I do. I am fueled by revenge. <laughs> but my revenge is justified because they started it. Hester Prynne may still be our archetype for a woman acting on her desires. But in the end, she doesn't get what she wants. Dimsdale just can't follow through on their plans to flee together. And of course, he can't do it. I mean, he's the same man he always was, and he was never able to be strong. But I think that Hawthorne is saying that's not a great thing to do anyway, because that would be another shirking of a kind of responsibility. These people have a responsibility to the community. They can't just take off. When Tom Parada was writing his novel Little Children, he retold that story. I suddenly realized, you know, there's a scene in Little Children where the adulterous lovers are on a football field and they commit to running away together. Run away with me. This is from the movie version. What? Starring Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson. (sighs) You don't mean that. You believe in me. But, you know, they have to make some arrangements. And, of course, in the intervening space, the man loses heart and finds that the courage leaks away. And and so it really is a kind of um, clear reference back to this scene in The Scarlet Letter that I thought I had forgotten. But I, I think it's that kind of book. It becomes part of America's collective unconscious and certainly American novelists' uh, unconscious. In The Scarlet Letter, Reverend Arthur Dimsdale does eventually confess his sins and promptly dies of a heart attack. Hester and Pearl leave town. But at the end of the book, Hester returns. She lives out her life there, becoming a kind of advisor to local women, talking about their troubles in love. All the while, she wears the Scarlet A. In the lapse of the toilsome, thoughtful, and self-devoted years that made up Hester's life, The Scarlet Letter ceased to be a stigma which attracted the world's scorn and bitterness and became a type of something to be sorrowed over and looked upon with awe, yet with reverence too. Hester is buried next to Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. This book is all about the tension between public shaming and public accountability. Nathaniel Hawthorne intimately details the inner lives of the transgressors and the enforcers, their individual motivations and hurts. But he's never totally clear on how he feels about the transgression. In this drama that centers on community judgments, Hawthorne withholds his. I think the frustrating part of him is what's the wonderful part of him, and that is he's very brilliant, and he won't take a stand. Hawthorne has a lot of stuff that's disquieting. He just kind of holds out here. This is discomforting and unsettling. Let's look at it for a while. It's our anxiety. He induces anxiety in us, and we want to keep coming back and trying to understand. I've been loving you. That piece first aired in 2013. Excerpts from the story were read by Amanda Quaid. Lindy West is now a contributing opinion editor for The New York Times and last year published a memoir called Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman. Peter Coviello now teaches at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And Anna Sale, of course, is now the host of the excellent podcast Death, Sex, and Money. And she is on the line with me now. And as I was listening to that, I wondered, like, hmm, there must be hundreds, if not thousands, or maybe even millions of essentially Dimsdales of a sort around America now waiting to be be outed (laughs) by their 
uh, charitably speaking for the man, Hester Prinz. Yeah. And I, you know, listening back, when you hear that Arthur Dimsdale does eventually confess and promptly dies of a heart attack, <laughs> yeah. um, it's just sort of like it leaves open that question of can a man who did wrong, can he find redemption? Yeah. Um, the thing that I don't remember being as conscious of is the question of why Hester protects the reverend that she had the affair with. It's just something yeah. that's unquestioned. It's like that's part of what you're expected to do. She's going to protect the offender. And I think that's what I think about a lot about this moment we're in right now is that seems to be crumbling, right. um, that feeling that the risk is too high to name someone who has done something to you. Um, of course, in the Scarlet Letter, as far as we know, it was a consensual affair, which is very different. Well, and, and the consensual nature, the, the, the ab- technically consensual nature, or the consensual nature of it, reminds me, in fact, more than the things that are being exposed lately, uh, of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, now that I and we are recasting our glance at Clinton and what he did. Yeah. And I, you know, talking to you, Kurt, has made me want to go back and do a critical reading of the Scarlet Letter and to (laughs) analyze the power dynamic between Hester and Arthur um, Dimsdale, because I think it's like, that's a thing that that we're grappling with now is like, what is consensual? You know, we've, we've had an agreement that if you're a minor with someone who is of legal age, that that can't be consensual. But when you look at community power and you look at workplace power um, and you look at who is the aggressor in creating a sexual relationship, um, those are all questions we're, we're digging in a little more deeply now in contemporary America. And um, I didn't look at that power dynamic as closely, I think, when I reread it four years ago when I was working on this piece. I'd like to think about that some more. I, one of my commonplace Oh, here we are. Feelings about America in the 21st century is like there is no more shame. Shameful behavior does not result in sufficient shame, the conservative little me often said. But at least in this instance, in this spectrum of misbehavior the last two months, that ain't true. No, not true at all. It's like um, it's interesting to see what institutions and companies and people who are trying to make money, like there's seen to be a real cost to be associated with someone who is um, who has either been found to be or alleged to have been some kind of um, perpetrator or predator. And, and there's real fast justice happening right now. Um, I'm encouraged by it in some ways because I think it shows how long we thought that, that there weren't means to find this t- kind of justice. Um, I'm doing just a lot of reflecting and thinking about this new world we live in and how long it's going to last and what the consequences are um, yes. and if this is a moment or if this is a new paradigm. All those things. As somebody who began your career, and continued your career in public media, public radio specifically, was the fact of uh, NPR's head of the news, Michael Oreskes, being so swiftly booted when his misconduct was exposed, were you particularly, oh, my God, here among my tribe, this is also happening. Did you have that feeling? Yeah, of course. You know, I was a young woman reporter in newsrooms and public media newsrooms seeking out the advice of older men. And I, I think of those mentors with great affection and to think that that was violated um, for women just like me, I found completely and totally heartbreaking. It felt very close. Well, and that the good men of the kind who presumably mentored you and young women seeking such mentorship, that's I would think 
not happening as freely as it did some weeks ago? Yeah, I think people are probably having a lot fewer work meetings over drinks right yeah, now. Yeah, And maybe that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Anna Sale, uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Anna Sale is the host of the podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Coming up, the taboos that Cole Porter wrote about in Anything Goes sound a bit 1934. So we gave the song an update. When dames as dim as Kim Kardashian triumph by acting trashy in tawdry shows, anything goes. We take some liberties with an American icon. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Today where nobody can oppose. When girls of 10 are adolescing and proving the fact by dressing. Studio 360. With all the sickening sexual misconduct revelations about big shots in politics and entertainment and all kinds of business, it seems kind of quaint for Americans to be clutching their pearls at this or that celebrity, saying a curse word on the air or stumbling out of some nightclub. But Americans will continue to be obsessed with propriety and transgression, and TMZ will keep chugging along with the latest gossip. And that's nothing new. More than eight decades ago, Cole Porter captured the American attitude towards racy behavior. As you might know, Anything Goes was the title song of a Cole Porter musical set aboard an ocean liner. The play is a little worse for wear, but the song keeps finding new fans thanks to covers from Frank Sinatra to the cast of Glee. As part of our series on American icons, Eric Malinsky traces the history of a tune that celebrates breaking taboos. You know, it's funny, the first time I heard Anything Goes was uh, as a kid seeing Indiana Jones at the Temple of Doom. Oh, in Chinese and yeah. high, high Mandarin. <laughs> yes. Do you remember that? Apparently I do. <laughs> <laughs> Will Friedwald is a pop music historian. I'm sure there are people that have done it with a Latin rhythm. You could do it as a bossa nova. You could take it to uh, Warsaw and do it as a polka. It would work perfectly as a polka. To me, that's the definition of a standard in the songbook, is that it's written to be done in all these different ways. You don't get to do that with a Beatles song or a Joni Mitchell song. Or if you do, usually the results are so vacakta, you know, why would you bother? Vacakta is not a word that Cole Porter would have used. Unlike everyone else on Broadway, he didn't speak Yiddish. 99% of everybody else was Jewish and first or second generation immigrant and lived in New York. Lawrence Maslin teaches theater at New York University. Cole Porter seemed to have been airlifted from this mythical place called Peru, Indiana, with impeccable breeding and a stock portfolio worth several million dollars back in the 19-teens. So not exactly a starving artist. When his first Broadway show flopped in 1919, he moved to Paris and threw parties for years. That's actually how Porter established his great reputation as a songwriter, making up hilarious songs to play for his famous friends. 
Richard Rogers in 1926 made a pilgrimage to hear Cole Porter's songs because he couldn't imagine that they were as wonderful as he had heard and they were even better. They were also filled with double entendres. Porter waits until the end of the first verse of Let's Do It to reveal that doing it is just falling in love. If you thought it was dirty in Cole Porter, you'd be right. Paris in the 20s was perfect for Porter. Everyone knew he was gay, including his wife. Then the Depression hit, fascism was on the rise, the expats started going home. When Porter got back, he felt like Rip Van Winkle. He missed the roaring 20s. And when he was gone, America had gotten sexy. Historian Julia Folk says, everyone was buzzing about this, quote, new American woman. All of a sudden, she had short hair, she had a much shorter hemline, she was dancing, and she was smoking and drinking and uh, going out with men, perhaps a number of men. They were also voting and going to college and getting jobs in brand new skyscrapers. In the Depression, there were even laws passed to prevent women from taking work away from men. And all of a sudden, you have that newfound freedom of women looking more threatening. But the big change in social mores came from Detroit. Prior to the 20th century, courtship would take place under the guise and under the eyes of your family. So you'd be sitting on the porch, uh, swinging perhaps with your intended. And it was all very scripted in many ways and very uh, watched. But cars came around and it allowed for private space. And a lot more things could occur in the backseat of a car than on a park bench or a dance hall. So Porter's observing all these changes while he's plotting his comeback. He has a couple of modest hits. And then in 1934, he strikes gold with Anything Goes. The show is full of madcap shenanigans on a cruise ship. The plot is vapid, but the songs are catchy. It was a perfect tonic for the Depression. Porter even cut a demo that played on the radio. Times have changed, and we've often rewound the clock since the Puritans got the shock. When they landed on Plymouth Rock, if today any shock they should try to stem, instead of landing on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock would land on them. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking, but now God knows anything goes. Now, we usually think of the 60s as the big era of social change, but the 1920s were a shocker. Porter is writing about lesbian fashionistas, respectable writers using four-letter words, and couples going to nudist parties. There are also jokes about Rockefeller, Roosevelt, and scandals from the 30s that no one remembers now. But we're still humming the tune. What makes the song endure, Cornel Lawrence Maslin, is the opening verse, which ties it all back to the Puritans. We have something called the First Amendment that says that we can say whatever we want and implicitly we can do most of what we want. And yet there's this Puritan streak in America which says, you can't change, you can't do that, that offends me. The character singing the song is ambivalent about slipping standards, but Porter himself didn't feel that way. I think what Cole Porter says is you better accept the fact that anything's going to go because that's what America's about. And you might as well enjoy the ride because American society is not going to stop for you and it's not going to go backwards. If it were serious, if it was really saying, oh, things are changing and we got to stop it, then it wouldn't hold up. You know, the, the mere fact that the camp element is there is the very thing that allows the lyric to be timeless. 
Will Friedwald is an expert on the Great American Songbook. But in 1934, there was no Great American Songbook. The shelf life of a Broadway tune was short. By the 1950s, Anything Goes was a relic. And by coincidence, so is Frank Sinatra. It's hard to remember now, but Frankie used to be a teenage heartthrob. When the Screaming Girls and Bobby Socks outgrew him, he was all washed up. In 1953, Sinatra reinvented his career and popular music itself with a series of albums that made Cole Porter and other songwriters from that era sound fresh again. Sinatra is really the one who says that these songs are classics, and this is what America has brought to the world. This is one of our great gifts to world culture, and that these songs deserve to be preserved and revered the same way that uh, Bach is revered, the same way that Beethoven is revered. The world has gone mad today, and good's bad today, and black's white today, and day's night today, when most guys today that women prize today are just silly gigolos. Sinatra's Anything Goes was so popular, it led to a TV broadcast of the show starring him and Ethel Merman. Paramount remade the movie in 1956, and a few years later, Anything Goes was back on Broadway. When you hear somebody say, such and such a song was neglected, or such and such a song is rare, or underdone, generally the unspoken criteria of a song being underdone means that it was never done by Sinatra or Ella Fitzgerald. So though I Anything Goes sort of worked for the atomic cocktail age, but the lyrics about Mae West and the Vanderbilts had to go. Even the lines about fast cars and short skirts were starting to feel quaint. Now, if you hear Anything Goes, it's part of a retro Rat Pack album with Michael Bublé or Harry Connick Jr. We've lost that sense of danger, the titillation that audiences felt back in 1934. What would Anything Goes sound like if we're written today? Hi, Joe. Hey, Eric. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Joe Keenan has written for TV shows like Frasier and Desperate Housewives. He's also a songwriter. He creates these great parodies of Cole Porter songs as a favor for charity events. It takes a certain talent to, you know, to ape Porter songs, but it took genius to come up with the template in the first place. So we gave Joe the task of updating Anything Goes. A reboot, as they say in Hollywood. I thought, well, what's the way in? I could just write, you know, updated stanzas, but it's, they, just to, you know, do a lot of updated stuff seemed to me to lack a point of view, and I thought it would be more interesting to approach the song by saying, you know, if Porter wrote that song today, what would be Porter's take, and what would he find a little bit shocking? And that wasn't an easy question to answer, because Porter was such a sophisticate that, you know, very little would have surprised him. But when Joe started brainstorming, he found plenty of stuff. One generation's idea of slipping standards is another generation's idea of liberation from social constraints. And that's the story of America. So here is Joe Keenan's update of Anything Goes, sung by his good friend Brian Batt, who played the character Sal Romano on Mad Men. A quick word of warning. These lyrics are not G-rated. So if there are kids listening, heads up, because anything goes. have changed Porter's ditty was once risque But if Porter could see today And decorum's complete decay He would say Though the thirties were hot as hell 
Everything that went then still goes And a whole lot else as well When gays can wed and jaws aren't dropping When Barney and Ben go shopping for baby clothes Anything goes When dames as dim as Kim Kardashian Triumph by acting trashy in tawdry shows Anything goes The smut you can get today on the net today Straight are gay today and all day today Cause burlesque today is on your desk today Where nobody can oppose When girls of ten are adolescing And proving the fact by dressing like tiny hoes Anything goes When grandma's face is pulled so tightly She looks like a Kira Knightley Whose eyes won't close Anything goes When stars whose thoughts are far from clever Are tweeting their fans whenever they blow their nose Anything goes If airing your views you like on Fox News you like If tattoos you like or girl shoes you like If rendezvous you like with Tom Cruise you like Just say you won't disclose When Cary Grants and Spencer Tracy's Have turned into Kevin Spacey's and Russell Crowe's Anything goes When fast food chains serve fries with bacon To folks who could be mistaken for buffaloes Anything goes When half the nation's filled with rancor From living in homes their banker will soon foreclose Anything goes Though banks are all crooks today with cooked books today When they fail today they get bailed today And those banks today are saying thanks today As their bonus pool just grows When men of God who preach with thunder Are looking for fun with underage Romeos Anything goes Anything Anything, ooh, everything goes. That was the Studio 360 reboot of Cole Porter's Anything Goes, written by Joe Keenan. Brian Batt performed it with Jesse Reeks on piano. Our story was produced by Eric Malinsky in 2013. Still ahead on this special Studio 360 American Icons Hour, photographs that contain entire imaginary movies. And you just know at the end of the film that she's going to die, that there's something foreboding. There's this Hitchcockian, you know, violence that's kind of lurking underneath. The stories we tell ourselves about Cindy Sherman's untitled film stills. That's in a minute in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Until cable came along, late night TV was all about old Hollywood movies. Night, kids. Between the end of the Johnny Carson show and the national anthem sign-off, we used to gorge on a smorgasbord of B-movies and studio classics. The photographer Cindy Sherman had the same experience as a kid in the 1970s. In an introduction to a book of her work, she wrote about going to a dinner party with her parents and watching Hitchcock's rear window alone in the basement. 
For most of us, those kinds of sleepy glimpses of the cinematic past just sank into oblivion. But not for Cindy Sherman. About 30 years ago, she turned all those movie memories into a series of self-portraits that have a weirdly haunting power. They're now some of the most famous art photographs ever, endlessly referenced in pop culture. The actor-slash-artist James Franco has made his own homage-slash-recreations of the pictures. Anne Hepperman looked into why untitled film stills became such a big deal that endure. Cindy Sherman's untitled film stills just feel familiar. Like untitled film still number 21. People often call it the city girl. Which I'm looking at right now with Museum of Modern Art curator Eva Ruspini. No, here it is. Yeah. It's a black and white 8x10 photo. And in it, you see a young woman surrounded by big city office towers. There's no question that she's in Manhattan. Here she is. And she's dressed like a 1950s, fresh-off-the-bus career girl from Kansas. She's got her, you know, hat and her little suit on, and she's, you know, trying to get a job. The picture's shot from below, with Sherman's face front and center. But what you really notice are her eyes. Her expression seems kind of fearful, maybe a little bit lonely. They're looking at something or someone just outside the frame. But this, to me, implies that someone's maybe watching her. You just know at the end of the film that she's going to die, that there's something foreboding. There's this Hitchcockian, you know, violence that's kind of lurking underneath. That's definitely the film, you know, taking over. Cindy Sherman has somehow created an entire movie around what looks like one frame of film. Seventy different images make up the untitled film stills. And they're meant to look cheap, like photos you'd find in a thrift store. Sherman changes her hair and her outfits to act out a whole range of 1950s and 60s B-movie and art house cliches, like the career girl. I think this application is filled out all right, Mr. Arnold. Thank you. The bombshell. I have to live as if every day were my last one. Something powerful in me that makes me behave foolishly. And the housewife. Like so many people these days, we live in the suburbs. Cindy Sherman started making the untitled film stills in 1977. At first, she'd dress up, rearrange the furniture, and shoot photos of herself. This was in the Soho loft that she shared with her then-boyfriend and fellow artist, Robert Longo. And then she had this idea about wanting to go out. She'd stuff a suitcase with clothes and wigs and throw them in the back of their van. It was like a hippie van. And we'd drive to locations, and she would change the back and then come out of the the van a different character. It would always be quite hideous sometimes. She looked pretty weird sometimes. When she worked outside, Sherman often had family or friends snap the pictures. Helene Weiner owned the artist space gallery where Cindy Sherman worked. She shot untitled film still number 83. Sherman told Weiner, stand over there and take some pictures as I walk down the street. I thought, these are going to be the worst ones, the most terrible ones, because she's not doing anything. What came out, though, looks like a shot from some European movie. You know, a Italian movie star fleeing from the press or not wanting to be recognized. Sherman's wearing a black wig and sunglasses cover her face, and she seems to be rushing across the square. Her expressions are subtle but evocative. Unlike real film stills, Sherman did not go for the -the over-the-top look. MoMA's Eva Ruspini. They would actually fail completely as actual publicity stills in that they don't show the climax of the movie or the most, you know, important scene or they don't convey the 
the narrative and the way that publicity stills were set up to do, and that blankness is a kind of stand-in for whatever you as the viewer want to believe about that character. The woman's, like, cheating husband has driven a car off the pier that she had rigged. Oh, I, I loved those. It looked so like Berlin in some spy novel. The moment where I picture her shifting from feeling sorry for herself to, you know what, I am going to get out of here now. Sherman brought some of the untitled film stills into the Artist Space Gallery, where she worked as a part-time receptionist. And we went crazy over them. I mean, I'm sure if the janitor was standing there, he would have known that this was something very, very special. The untitled film stills didn't linger as some wallflower art project. Everyone loved them. Collectors had never bought a photograph and would not buy it. Cindy was the only one people would actually purchase to own. Critics loved the series, too. As one person put it, it seemed like you'd come upon the film stills in books, anthologies, and magazines more often than in a gallery or a museum. Cindy Sherman, untitled film stills, is known to every single art student. That's Zoe Crosher. She's a contemporary artist in Los Angeles. I found her after Googling, untitled film stills changed my life. It's slightly disconcerting because I said that in some offhand remark during some talk that I gave somewhere. Um, But it did change my life. Crosher remembers exactly how that influence worked on her. She was 19 and in college when she first saw the untitled film stills. She'd been struggling to find an artist who inspired her, especially a woman. There were women photographers, yes, but all their work was documentary. Grab a camera, go out into the world, and capture all the freaks that you can see. Then she saw the untitled film stills. Suddenly here comes this complicated situation where I'm looking at something that's constructed, but it doesn't look like it's constructed. And and this woman who's chameleon-like and changing the way that she presents herself, and she's also in control of the taking of all of these photographs and this notion of agency that she, it sounds like she probably didn't even intend to have, which is the interesting, one of the interesting things about her and the history of her work um, is that she's constantly, she's mute about everything she does. And that's part of the mystery of Cindy Sherman. Even though she puts herself center stage in the images, she's extremely private. The artist was gracious about it, but eventually declined to talk for the story. And for a lot of people, Sherman's silence just adds to the layers of ambiguity in the untitled film stills. Would I like to have a conversation with her? Of course. But that's not important. Understanding her intent with this, like, that's completely not important. What's important is what I've decided is important about it to me. Jim Adkins is the lead singer of Jimmy Eat World. And a few years ago, he started using the untitled film stills as a writing exercise. And then it turned into an album, Invented. I can compete with the clear eyes of strangers. Adkins says his backstories for the untitled film stills got quite elaborate. Like untitled film still number 36. That turned into a song called Evidence. In the photo, Sherman is just a silhouette of a woman. She's changing clothes. It looks like lingerie. And there's a cloth hanging right behind her. Maybe she moved into a place with a boyfriend and they got like a super awesome deal on a, on a really small place in New York. You know, they break up, but neither of them really want to move out because they have such an awesome deal on this rent-controlled space. 
just to get some sort of privacy, she just staples this bedsheet to the ceiling in between their space. And the dude, you know, has no choice but to kind of, you know, stew in this tension. <laughs> I think what's brilliant about the untitled film stills and about Cindy's work in general is you don't need a PhD in order to get them. And I think the work is smart, perceptive, elegant, provocative but accessible. And accessibility here is not a bad word. And because they're so accessible, so easy to grab onto, the untitled film still stories become our narratives. It's like there's some kind of art Rorschach test. The stories we tell about them reveal something about us. Even more so now, says Eva Ruspini, when so many of us are constructing stories with photographs. You know, all of those things are about facades. The selfie's not about who you really are. It's about how you look best in the camera to your friends, creating this, you know, narrative of what you're doing and how great that seems. I love you, too. Getting married. Is that your sissy? Yeah. And that's what the work is about. It's really about manufactured identities. And who knows how we'll be feeling in 30-plus years about our own selfies. Truthfully, I'm a little sick of these pictures. Cindy Sherman wrote in 1997 when MoMA displayed the untitled film stills together for the first time. It's funny to see some of them now. Funny, because while people have been generating mental movies from the untitled film stills, Sherman looks at them and sees this. Herself on a certain day, decades ago, dressed a certain way, acting out a certain scenario. She isn't the person in the untitled film stills anymore. That person is us. Ann Hepperman produced that American Icon story for us in 2013. Eva Raspini is now the Barbara Lee Chief Curator of the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. And that's it for today's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI Public Radio International in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Flawed Gallette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He induces anxiety in us, and we want to keep coming back and trying to understand. Thanks very much for listening. Studio 360 is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360. I believe we do things that really are magic and defy explanation. We're going someplace magical. I always thought Disneyland is like going to heaven. When you wish Disney's theme parks. Next time in Studio 360's American Icons from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Anything your heart desires.